Paratooth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Hey, Paratruthers. This week's episode is brought to you by our patrons over on Patreon.com forward slash Paratruth. With their help, we are continuing to bring amazing new content to our listeners every week. So if you feel the urge to donate, head on over to Patreon.com forward slash Paratruth, where you can just donate only a dollar and get some amazing rewards for your donation. Go check it out. Christian and non-Christian paranormal investigators. They have two different views, and it seems as if neither of them can ever agree on anything. So what happens when a mainstream view of the paranormal crosses paths with the Christian view? <laughs> Something epic. This is Paratroop Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. And today, as we continue our series on the world's most haunted, we'll be traveling down under to discuss the old Melbourne Gale. Then from there, we'll be traveling east or west, depending on which route you prefer to take, (laughs) to head on over to Puerto Rico, where we will be talking about the Hotel El Convento. I think we're going to, as I had mentioned, we're going to go ahead and just start off with Old Melbourne because that's a long travel, long distance. I'd rather get that knocked out first. <laughs> uh, so Australia, uh, we did say, you know, the, la- the last couple of weeks we brought to you guys a lot of stuff ha- here in America up until last week where I believe we visited London. Right. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, but now here we are in Australia. We had this old... Uh, old Melbourne and Gale, and there's a lot of information on this, and then you can go to a number of websites, and they actually have a website dedicated to Old Melbourne, uh, where you can actually do a virtual tour of the building if you really wanted to. You can just click and check things out. It's pretty cool, uh, and especially works for those of us who don't have money to travel to Australia just to see Old Melbourne. Uh, <laughs> but Old Melbourne. It actually opened in January on January first of eighteen forty seven and closed July night in July of nineteen twenty four. Now it consists of a bluestone building and courtyard and is actually located next to an old uh, city police watch house and city courts buildings. Uh, when it was first constructed and during its operation, mostly because there, there, it's weird. Actually, this is. I read some stuff on this. I don't know if you read the things about the children or not. We'll get to that later. <laughs> but this place has housed everybody, basically. Like, it don't, it, they don't care what age you are. Uh, there are children locked up at this place. There are old people locked up. Murderers locked up at this place. It's just crazy. <laughs> but this place was basically from 1842 to 1924 uh, held and executed some of Australia's most notorious criminals. Uh, some of those including Bush Ranger Ned Kelly, who was supposedly or who supposedly killed a number of police officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people actually believe Ned Kelly to be a hero, while others were very much against them. Now, you probably wonder why was Ned Kelly a hero to some people if he killed police officers? And it's mostly because he was standing up for their rights, basically. He, he was, you know, against the man, basically. Rights activist uh, sort of deal. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it also housed serial killer uh, Fed. 
Frederick Bailey Deeming. Now, in total, uh, between these years, there were approximately 135 people that were executed. Uh, and they were all executed by hanging. Yeah, it's kind of a one-track mind when it comes to, to this particular place for for the executions because, I mean, a lot of places that you look at, there would have been hangings, execution by gunfire, if you will, mm-hmm. gunfire. And this one, I mean, it, it stuck to hang, maybe just because it was a small little area, I don't know. But it, it was interesting to see that it had stuck to that and it was briefly used in World War II, which is interesting. And it was finally incorporated into the RMIT University and has become a museum ever since then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the the history was really not super rich on this, but it brought up a lot of stuff because I have researched Ned Kelly before I actually saw the movie that was done on him. It was, it's really interesting. His, his history in and of itself, which we could probably just kind of do a brief thing, which we kind of done. And he was one of those people that, like you said, either was a hero or the villain. I guess it just depended on what side you were standing on. Mm-hmm. Um, in January of 1838, George Wintle was appointed to be gaoler at the prison. He was paid a hundred, I don't know what that is, pounds, euros, a year, whatever, uh, with sight becoming colloquially, colloquially known as Wintel's Hotel. Wintel's hotel. Uh, construction of the gaoler started in 1839 through 1840 on Collins Street West and was considered to, too small at the time. A second gale was then built between 1841 and 1844, so there's more than just the one building. Even though they call it the old Melbourne gale, you think one building. At least that's what Mm -hmm. came to mind when I first looked at it. Uh, Now, the interesting thing is looking at the building, it says using blue stone instead of sandstone. It really doesn't look blue to me. Does it look blue to you? Not particularly, no. (laughs) I mean, there's, there's, I guess some of the accents seem blue, some of the bricks, um, but it's blue is one of those. I mean, I've heard it before, you know, people using a blue stone or this or that, but it's more of like a grayish color, you know. Uh, but you use the term blue because it does have a blue hue depending on lighting and shadowing and things like that. Okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. The person that designed it and built it was Joshua Jeb. And he was a guy from London who also designed Pentaville Model Prison. The new wing was extended in between 1857 to 1859, with the boundary wall also being extended during that time. In 1860, a new north wing was built, which included entrance buildings, a central hall, and a chapel. And between 1862 and 1864, a cell block was built for female prisoners, on the western side, it was basically a replica of the present east block, just split between the two sexes. In 1864, the perimeter wall and the gale overall was completed, making it a dominant feature of authority on the Melbourne skyline. So, 
as you mentioned earlier, this particular building uh, prison was used to house short term prisoners uh, during its operation. And these short term prisoners would include lunatics and some of the colony's most notorious and hardened criminals. Uh, but it also surprisingly housed up to about 20 children at a time, including those in prison for petty theft or vagrancy. And of course, also those who are just staying with a convicted parent, which is very interesting because according to the rules of the prison back then, babies under uh, 12 months old were allowed to be with their mothers in prison. However, again, children were still arrested and kept in this prison along with these lunatics and murderers. Uh, and the youngest prisoner being recorded as about three years old. Get that. Mm. His name was Michael Crimmins, and he spent about six months in prison in 1857 for being idle and disorderly. How messed up is that, right? Can you imagine, like, my kids being a brat that's thrown in prison <laughs> with these hardened criminals or, like, serial killers? Sadly, I, I almost wish we could someday. <laughs> Depending oh, on the that'd be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> However, you know, this place also you know, housed homeless people as well. And so in 1851, there was a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old known as the Doe-Out Sisters who were imprisoned because they had nowhere else to go. So naturally, I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing because let's face it, prisoners at this place were convicted of serious crimes such as murder, arson, burglary, rape, and shooting. What a great place to keep kids. (laughs) Uh, And they would actually begin their entire, like their time in prison on the ground floor with a time of solitary confinement. Basically, this had three floors and each floor was like a bump up from the first floor. If you were the really bad criminal who's new there, you start off on that first floor completely solitary. You get one hour where you get to go outside by yourself. And then the other 23 hours, you'd be stuck in your in your cell. You'd have nothing but a very thin mattress which laid on pieces a slat a slate flooring, so that sucks. Yeah, and they would only be able to bathe and change clothes once a week, and then attend the chapel on Sundays with a Bible, which was provided because they believe that obviously the Bible would promote good behavior. Yes, let's lock them up for twenty three hours straight, treat them poorly, not give them the bath or clothes, but give them that Bible because I guarantee you they're gonna change their ways. If I'm I was, sorry, the- it's just there's ways to priest or whatever there i would have had a clothespin on my nose because well, unless it was that particular day that they were allowed to bathe i don't yeah. know well and what i just don't get this is what gets me because and this is the thinking of the times and even nowadays really it, basically what they're doing here is they're treating the criminals poorly which i understand you know they're, they're in solitary confinement as they should be it's their punishment this and that but in a sense it's a it's kind of torture you know they're by themselves they're only allowed to bathe once a week they can only change their clothes once a week but then they decide hey let's give them a bible because the bible will promote good behavior but torturing them and then providing a bible are two very <laughs> you know in di- are different things and it doesn't mesh well like who would want to you know, whatever. Well, but, I mean, a lot of people believe, I mean, look at the, we talked about the Salem witch trials. A lot of people will use faith in order to inflict un, unreasonable and unnecessary violence or torture on people that didn't even fall under the realm of needing to, to be punished. 
even right, from the, the bubble. That's not Bible what they're theory. doing here, though. They're they're punishing them, punishing them based on their own. Well, laws. no, no. What I'm saying right. is, is they they used the Bible as to say this is how you're supposed to be good, but still mm-hmm. called themselves Christians and did these types of things that would abhor most people. Gotcha. Okay, so if indeed you decide to somehow find a way to promote good behavior. And of course, some of these people did, they began to obey the rules. And if you obey the rules, you were promoted to the second floor. Now this would happen probably somewhere around midterm of your stay, most notably. Uh, but the second floor, they would be allowed to work in the yards every day. Uh, male prisoners would promote, uh, would perform hard labor, which would include breaking rocks and other duties in the stone quarries while women would sew, clean and cook. Uh, and they would also make like shirts and waistcoats, things like that for the male prisoners and also act as servants for the governor uh, and his family. And then, of course, if they were very trusted. And this is normally at the end of their terms, they'd be promoted to the third floor and the third floor is a communal cell, basically. Uh, these top level cells were large. They held about six prisoners at a time. And they were mostly reserved to to prisoners that were convicted of minor crimes, such as drunkenness, uh, vagrancy, prostitution, things like that. So this was a place where they were, towards the end of their times or their sentence, they were allowed to come up and talk to people. And it's almost a way of readapting them to civilization, which is actually kind of a smart thing to do after so much solitary confinement. You don't take someone out of solitary after 10 years and throw them into society. Nothing's going to go well there. (laughs) But yeah, so those are the three floors uh, in regards to the operation and how it worked. And it's actually kind of an enlightening thing. And it's pretty interesting that they would go that route. I could see how and why that might work. Now, did you bring up, I, I didn't hear you bring up the, the hoods that they had to use on the first floor? No, I didn't bring up the hoods. Okay. It's interesting because the it kind of reminded me a little bit of Alcatraz because they were forbidden to communicate I mean, the only difference between here and Alcatraz is they would enforce this by putting a what they called a silence hood or calico hood on people uh, when they were outside of their cells. And Mm -hmm. just to see the hood, it almost looks like a KKK hood, if you will, just not as tall. It does. Yeah, it does. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there were a number of executions uh, during its operation. Approximately 100, not approximately, exactly 135 hangings to be exact. Which is funny Um, because going back that far, you would think they wouldn't have great records. So to have an exact number is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. And it's... I mean, when you think about it, though, like the eight, 1880s, for example, you know, that's, that's not really that far off. Well, it's not no, that but... far away, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the 1500s, you know, for example, like Salem, I'll bring up Salem again real quick. That was the 1500s. And so naturally, we're going to be missing quite a few facts. And hence the reason why it's still one of the biggest debated uh, historical events of America's time. Right. Um. But yeah, so there was 135 hangings during the operation of the Gale. And of course, the most infamous was that of the Bushranger Ned Kelly, who at the age of 25 on November 11th of 1880 
was indeed executed after a two-day trial and convicted of killing a police officer. Now, of course, they say a police officer, but there's also been evidence that it's police officers. I don't know. I didn't bother to do full research on that particular. I don't think it's that important. (laughs) But, you know, however many police officers, that's why he was uh, hung. Now, as stated by law at the time, executed prisoners were buried in unmarked graves in the gay old burial garden or burial yard. Now, before burial, there was a death mask that was produced from the executed prisoner's head as part of the prenological study of hanged felons. And it's actually really, I mean, if you guys have ever seen these, these, uh, death masks they're really creepy yeah. but they're extremely detailed so you can look at the and they have these in their museum there too uh, but when you see them you're basically seeing what those people actually looked like that died back in the 1800s which is incredible because most of the times we just see it in paintings or pictures you know whatever it was actually a common thing uh, around that time because like richard wagner the mm-hmm. the composer had a, a death mask made of himself i don't know if they had to be requested or if it was just a common thing to do that for everybody who died. But yeah, it's interesting and creepy all at the same time. It is. Well, now Ned Kelly, of course, wasn't the only one who was killed there. There was also the very first, uh, hanging of a woman in Victoria. Uh, her name was Elizabeth Scott and she was hung on November 11th of 1863 alongside with their co-accusers, Julian Cross and David Gedge or Jedge. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce that. (laughs) Some of these names you never know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then of course the last person to be executed was Angus Murray in 1924, which is the same year that the gale was closed, which I have to wonder if it closed before he was hung, would he have ever been hung or would he have lived out his days? Which just poor timing. It's sad. But then again, I don't know what he did. So (laughs) I think it was actually, I think I do know what he did and it was murder. So depends on what the murder was. I don't know what the circumstances were. I don't know what was true, but you know what? Here's one that's really interesting because not everybody here who was murdered or uh, executed were properly executed for reasonable cause. For example, well, there's two here. The first one, and, and not to say, like, believe me, like, I wish, I think anyone who, who believes, like, somebody raped somebody, I think anybody who thinks that they should kill the rapist, you know, because, like, come on, raping yeah. people. But, yeah, so they murdered some or uh, executed somebody for rape, which obviously isn't done these days unless they murder them, too. Um, Depends on the, the state for us. I'm, I mean, I don't know about other countries, but. Yeah. Colin Campbell Craw, uh, Ross, he was born in 1892. He was uh, executed on April 24th in 1922 for murder. However, he was pardoned in 2008 because it turns out that he was falsely accused. So, unfortunately... Back then, they didn't have quite the ability that we have now. They're actually, nowadays, there's people who actually fight. They have uh, companies that fight for prisoners who they believe are indeed uh, innocent in whatever it was that they were deemed guilty for. Uh, if they're and being that strongly about it, yeah, I, I think that's a good thing for 
today's yeah for sure uh and you'll be surprised at how many people are convicted falsely Falsely, uh, and how many people have been executed uh falsely you know for false stuff uh so it is good that they have that out there uh and and these people aren't like they're not your lawyer your typical lawyers you know they're not like out there just fighting for the bad guy because they want to make money. These are people who are usually non-profit uh, organizations that just want things to be right. They want the judicial system to, you know. Right. Yeah. And then there was Frederick uh, Bailey Deeming. Uh, he was born on July 30th of 1853, and at 16 years of age, he ran away to sea. Thereafter, he began a long career of crime, largely thieving uh, and obtaining money under false pretenses. Uh, but he was ended up being responsible for the murder of his first wife, Marie, and his four children uh, in, in England, as well as a second wife, Emily, in Melbourne. Less than three months elapsed between the discovery of Emily Mather's body in Windsor, uh, Melbourne, in March of 1892, and Deming's execution at the old Melbourne Gale for her murder in May of 1892. Now, a remarkably short time by comparison to modern Western legal standards, because we know that most of the uh, uh, executions happen years after they're officially tried and convicted and then you know they get their judgment mm-hmm. but um after his execution it was reported that over 12,000 people cheered on the streets outside and that there was a public speculation that deeming was in fact dun, 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 jack the ripper i did come across now, that yeah which is okay, so Jack there, but that's fine. But he's only killed. I, I don't mean to say only, right? <laughs> I only mean, documented women, that we know. Uh, yeah, of, it's only documented that he killed two women and four children. Now, Jack the Ripper, as far as I understand, and from all the research we've done, didn't kill children. Right. So, and the women that he did kill weren't housewives. They were prostitutes. So I don't really see where they're getting this whole Jack the Ripper thing. But hey, back then they made them people happy. And then guess what happened? Jack the Ripper probably killed some more people. Like, darn. (laughs) Anyway. Well, it's interesting that uh, uh, this jail in particular housed not only men and women, because we do have uh, intergender jails today here in the States, but uh, they housed kids and it was, could have been just something as simple as they were homeless. Mm -hmm. Super weird. But then again, so were the times just like today. So something that was interesting to me was that particular thing, because in any of the ones that we've done for the States, you don't come across that. Right. So something that I wanted to get into was a little bit of the activity that uh, goes on there. I didn't come across a whole lot. Maybe you came across a little bit more than I did, but uh, there they do have night tours at the old Melbourne Gale or Gowl or however you pronounce that word. And the, some of the, the stuff that they've come across is uh, they've heard moaning, screams, footsteps, the usual apparition caught on camera. It's usually a dark figure. Temperature drops. That's pretty much all I came across. Was there anything that 
was different that you came across? Not really. Uh, like you said, the, the, pretty much just some video evidence, pictures or whatever. Uh, you got your, your uh, disembodied voices and then electrical interference, which unfortunately, this is one of the things I have with electrical interference because a lot of people will, and not people in general, but I just mean uh, paranormal investigators when they come across electrical interference. Uh, for those that are actually looking for evidence, they'll often deem that electrical interference as paranormal instead of debunking it, which this is an old building. So there's a really good chance. And it looks to me in the pictures that there's actual lighting. So there's electricity running right, through there. That's, right. I'm sure there's some faulty wiring in there somewhere, probably nothing that's bad. I'm sure they've gone through it and, you know, the fire department's looked at it and said, okay, it's safe, but that's not to say it's not putting out high EMFs. Uh, you know, it, with an old building like this, you know, high EMF is not something that you need to take care of. It's not going to really cause a lot of problems, right. but in the end, the high EMF is something that can be debunked, but also it could, it could actually, um, help to create some of these things that people are seeing or witnessing or hearing. Um, so unless they actually caught some of this evidence on digital voice recorders or they're just hearing it, you know, that could be the difference between whether or not it's haunted or, uh, but the ghostly figures still, I mean, they, they, have a recording of it supposedly and that was in 2005 uh of some type of grotesque vis uh visage uh standing in one of the doorways so i mean that's something to check out i mean actually i don't know if you have anything else to say about this one but i'm going to go ahead and check that out real quick because i would like to see if it can be quickly debunked so anyway folks i cannot find it it doesn't look like they posted that 2005 video so if any of you out there do have it or know where to find it please send it to us or send it to me at least. I'd love to check it out uh, and see if it can't be debunked. But there certainly seem to be quite a few uh, different videos of people, but sounds like women screaming or children screaming uh, and other little light phenomena and stuff like that. So who knows, you know, I mean, I'd love to check out some video though of these ghosts and see if it can't be debunked or pictures. Oh, the interesting thing is I came across this article that, talks about a specific cell, cell 17. Um, mm -hmm. It's just the typical stuff. You get an eerie, odd feeling from it. The person that wrote the article said that they speculated that the presence is a woman, even though they, they must have been in the all-men side because this says that the section of the Yale that they were in was that the had been all men, um, or only men. So... Nothing too outlandish as far as this article goes into, but it seems like in any of these jail cases where they're reporting hauntings, there's always that one cell. That there is. There's always that one cell. More active than the rest. And w which cell is this? Cell 17 is what this cell one is 17. saying. And it's always the cells that are in the teens right. as well. So it's hmm. interesting that uh, you come across that. I, maybe we can hash it out at the end of the show, even uh, in post-show. But uh, I think this is a good place to take our break. You've been listening to Paratruth Radio, and we will be right back with Hotel El Convento right after this. There are spirits everywhere watching, waiting, seeking 
that opportune time to reveal themselves like no other. They fill our worlds with so much. Seriously? You didn't just do that. You farted on the promo? What's wrong with you? I thought you were professional. C go away. Go. I, I got it. I got it. Hey everybody, it's Brian Bowden, host of Nobo Boomy, where we explore deep inside the Goblin universe. We have an amazing show that covers the paranormal, conspiracies, music, art, entertainment, trending topics, and so much more. Please join us by subscribing to the show on Podbean at InsideTheGoblinUniverse.Podbean.com, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere you find podcasts. It's an informative, fun, and overall entertaining good time, and uh, we'll keep the gas to ourselves. Why don't you burp next time? Someone give me Brian Anderson. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. Right. <laughs> Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. As always, my name is Eric. And I am Justin. And it's been fun here down under, but it's getting a little warm and I'm scared of the bugs. So we are moving on <laughs> to Puerto Rico, where the bugs aren't much better, but at least it's closer to home. So here we are in Puerto Rico. That was a quick travel. Yeah, for, my arms are tired yeah, from flying. For, whew, exhausted. I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to be talking about Hotel El Convento. And Hotel El Convento, well, basically it's just that, a hotel. And a very beautiful hotel at that, if you ever seen the uh, any of the pictures or anything like that. So this hotel began construction in 1646 and was founded in 1651 by Doña Ana Lanzos, a wealthy widow who donated her money and her magnificent residence in the street that since then bears the name De Las Manjos. Folks, I do not speak Spanish, so I'm very sorry if I'm destroying that. De Las Manjas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my... Uh, sincere apologies <laughs> for all you Spanish speaking uh, speaking people out there. Um, <laughs> oh goodness! Anyway, the building existed that that particular building existed until about 1854 when they decided to expand it. The expansion ranged between or took from 1854 to about 1861 after the original building was torn down. Eventually, after being its magnificent self, it ended up closing in 1903 and remained closed until 1959, where it was then reopened under the Operation Bootstrap. Robert Woolworth uh, started the renovation to turn it into, of course, what we now know as El Convento Hotel. It eventually reopened in 1962 officially to the stars of the day. 
including Rita Hayworth, and in, ni- in the 1990s was then renovated again and rechistened as Hotel El Convento, a far- four-star small luxury hotel with five stories, a central courtyard, a pool on the fourth floor terrace, and of course, great views of, of Old San Juan. It's interesting that they, in 1990, they renovated and then just completely put the hotel in front instead of behind and, and rechristened it Hotel El Convento instead of El Convento Hotel. Like, really, what is the difference? <laughs> well, I feel like, I mean, I feel like a lot of the Spanish, you know, like even when, when I get boxes and stuff like that, you know, in the mail or I pick something up at the store, you, they usually have the American version of the title and whatever it's subtitle. And then it has a Spanish version and the Spanish version is always reversed. It's like everything's well, read back. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. Some reason. I don't know. The the way that the Spanish language works is a lot of times that stuff is, is rearranged as to how we would say it in English. But still, I feel whether you say hotel El Convento or El Convento hotel, it gives you the same, feel it, i mean just because you renovated it you could have still called it el convento hotel and it still would have had that same feel you didn't have to rechristen it but would it have <laughs> meant the same thing i mean for all i know and again i don't know anything about <laughs> spanish so i'm just ignorant in this matter folks but by saying like el convento hotel could mean el convento from hell or something and then who would want to stay there i mean i don't know so putting hotel in the beginning may be necessary. Uh, maybe. I don't know. But Or maybe because El Convento came first, they thought it was still a, a convent in, instead of a hotel. So they yeah. were like, no, I don't hotel know. El Convento. For not those the- of you who speak Spanish out there, you have a couple of ignorant Americans <laughs> right. sitting here talking about a Spanish place. So please feel free to uh, chip in on us at any time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it was it's interesting because it was a convent. Um, it was a monastery, which I'm assuming they must be the same thing, really. Um, but uh, for the San Juan Cathedral Square or adjoining the San Juan Cathedral Square, uh, the cathedral is the second oldest cathedral in the Western Hemisphere as well. Unfortunately, and I I, I researched as much as I possibly could for trying to find paranormal activity here all i could find and maybe you found something different was that they a bulk of the activity is centered around the apparition of uh doña ana de lanzos being the one walking the corridors uh there was somebody who had said that they stayed the night there nothing out of the ordinary just some weird experiences uh, they didn't go into great detail or anything with it. Uh, did you come? Oh, uh, they. The one thing, actually, I just saw this uh, that they came across is hearing trumpets being played. Hmm. Uh, but did you come across anything different? Did, were you able to find anything else on that? Yeah. Uh, well, they were also able to see uh, walking the halls. Uh, along with Danya was the nuns. There were, there were supposedly nuns that they could see walking around. They could hear the swishing sound of the robes of the nuns, which apparently still echo through the hotel at certain hours of the day. Um, but beside that, I mean, that's pretty much it. There's not too, too much in regards to, um, I guess it depends on your definition of heavy paranormal activity, but 
what we're not seeing is multitudes of ghosts. We're seeing one, maybe, a, right. you know, three, four ghost tops, and they're all central to Donia and basically the beginnings of this hotel back in the 1600s. Well, what's interesting to me, and we can hash this out much deeper next episode because that will be our wrap-up episode for this series, but it's interesting that the the locations here in the U.S., we found documented paranormal activity, like like explicit explanations, um, but... On the the ones that are international, we can only find very minimal, except for I mean the Tower of London. There was quite a few extensive uh, cases, but right. which makes you then have to wonder because a lot of this explicit content that we're finding um, in these paranormal investigations, we're learning mostly from internet and television, mm-hmm. which makes you question: Does that mean? If all this stuff is happening in America and not happening overseas or any other country for that matter, is it all just show? Is it all just for the pretty penny for their host? And the fact is that it very well may be. It can be simply just entertainment and nothing more. So why is there if if it isn't if it isn't entertainment, then why is there more happening here in America than there is in other countries? And I know some would say, well, America is a little more new agey. But are we really that much more new agey than other places that are still, especially those that are still living in uh, what some consider pagan times, um, working with the old ancient gods and things like that? Well, I've heard a couple of people on other shows as well as uh, just kind of people that I've met say that the U.S. has more... And it it could be, too, that it's just not really documented outside the U.S., but the U.S. has more of this type of activity going on, paranormal, cryptid. Uh, UFOs are huger here compared to the rest of the world, from my understanding that I've heard. And I, it, nobody can explain why. They're just like, yeah, for some reason, the... Uh, I should say North America, because I believe they're, they're talking about Canada as well has this centralized paranormal activity go on going on where in other parts of the world, yeah, they do have those stories, but it's few and far between compared to our neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really interesting because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, uh, the, the myths, the legends, the fairy tales that we have come from Europe. Right. Uh, you know, the first legends of the werewolf come from Europe vampires come from Europe. It all comes from Europe and it just traveled over to America with us. Uh, and so one can say, I suppose that perhaps the spirits, the hauntings, all that stuff traveled with us. Bigfoot, things like that, I think is more or less, uh, American other than your Yeti and stuff like that. Well, you got but native Americans that are reporting. The we do have native before. American lore yeah. as well. You know, all that stuff. Um, but I think And I wonder if some of the majority of it is people are more interested in this kind of stuff here because people tend to be more bored in America. That could be. I mean, we have a lot more at our our (laughs) disposal. We really do. Um, But when you look at other countries, and of course, this is coming from somebody who's 
been in America, in America, most of his life, you know, I've only traveled outside of America like twice. Right. Um, but you look at other countries and all that they have going on for them, some of the old rich history, you know, the different things that you can do and, you know, people love it. And here in America, everything's very young. There is no super rich history there. There's nothing that's like, right. You know, you can go to New York so many times before you're bored, you know, and see it all. Right. Uh, and so I think people just generally start to, uh, I guess, start to equip themselves with these ideas, these fantasies of ghosts and creatures and whatnot. And of course, I think we're more exposed to some of that because of Hollywood. And it allows us to want to dabble more within the occult, uh, whether it's Ouija board or some other matter, yeah. um, which then, of course, raises these paranormal instances uh, and I don't know, maybe there's something with the, what do they call them? Uh, can't get the name of it, but with the magnetic field oh, ley around lines. North. Yeah. Maybe there's something with ley lines around here. I don't really know, but it is interesting that things tend to be much more outgoing here for paranormal activity. Well, if you think about it too, one of the biggest fault lines is in California. I mean, so, I mean, a lot of people will associate ley lines with fault lines because they uh, interact or interconnect with each other. They're not they're not parallel. They're perpendicular, if you will, uh, to each other. And mm. so, yeah, that's an interesting concept that maybe they're the ley lines are a little bit heavier here. Um, maybe. Since we are so into it here, we're kind of manifesting it ourselves, and it's it's generating around us to other people as well. It's, it's possible. I mean, because just because, like you're mentioning Hollywood and the TV shows. I mean, it's so saturated right now that people will watch these things the paranormal shows in particular, because I can attest myself watching paranormal shows and then looking around like, Oh, what, what was that? What was that? And freaking out. So, um, maybe we're just scaring ourselves into thinking that we've Mm -hmm. got way more paranormal activity than we do. I don't know. Absolutely. Well, folks, that wraps up this particular episode on or discussion, I should say. I'm not ready to wrap the episode just yet, Justin, but I'm, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and wrap this discussion. Uh, we traveled to two different sides of the earth in a matter of an hour, and so I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, next week, we will be wrapping up the series with, of course, our series wrap. Where we'll discuss all this stuff and uh, have a little fun doing so. Are we going to actually but, do a wrap? Or is it just wrapping we, up? We very well can. <laughs> we'll have to very get together well to, to write up a wrap for the, the intro we very of well the can. wrap up. <laughs> uh, so one thing I wanted to bring to your attention, Justin, I I doubt that you heard about this. So that's why I'm bringing it up. But I want everyone else to chip in, too, for those of you listening. Um, today, which is... Monday, July 30th, because again, this is a pre-record, so you guys are getting this Sunday. So this is July 30th. Uh, I recently got a, saw a tweet that was retweeted by Zach Bagans. Now, some of you may know that Zach Bagans recently purchased a very particular painting at an auction 
This painting is a painting of Charles Manson using the painter's own blood. This person uses his blood to paint things. Uh, oh, yeah, and supposedly using uh, and apparently it has Charles Manson's ashes within it as well. Now, some of you may or may not know Zach Bagans owns a haunted museum uh, in Las Vegas with Justin. We've got to talk to you about Las Vegas in January. <laughs> <laughs> but he owns a museum in Las Vegas, and he's going to place this particular painting uh, in his crime section. It's the place that really talks about or um, teaches about the history of crime within America in particular, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got a, a, a tweet today from somebody. I don't want to mention the name, but he got a tweet today from somebody who said that it's basically sick that he would buy this portrait and put it up in his museum in order to praise or glorify Charles Manson. And of course his argument is this isn't praise by any means. And anyone who knows Zach Bagans knows he's not going to praise a murderer, but that it's more of a historical teaching, something to help people understand what our history is in America and what we're going through. Um, And so I wanted to bring to your attention, I want to bring that to your attention, Justin, and just ask, like, do you think that some of these things, like in this case, the painting or anything else uh, for that matter, uh, when people buy these, 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 uh, I hate to call them relics, but that's what I'm going to call it is a relic, uh, which tends to, to be a part of somebody of evil nature and then putting them up in a museum. I mean, is that glorifying these people or is it simply teaching oh that's a hard question i mean because a lot of the like for example we were just talking about the ghost shows but there are a lot of shows on today like uh dateline 48 hours that are talking about killers and that can be questioned for are we glorifying killers in the U.S. because we're constantly having shows about them. Uh, there was a show on, on Netflix about uh, a serial killer, or they call him a serial killer, but I honestly feel he was innocent. But are we glorifying those people just by doing these shows? I honestly, in my opinion, it's really hard, but I think... It just depends on what your intention is. If mm-hmm. your intention is to have it up to say, hey, this is a painting of Charles Manson. This is who he was. This is how the painting was created. That's it. I think that I, I honestly feel that we need to be educating, especially our youth today who have their nose buried into their phones, because even though we have constant access to information they tend to just watch stupid youtube videos Mm -hmm. anyways um but if someone were to put it up and be like this is the great and glorious charles manson and uh this beautiful artist took his blood and ashes and painted this painting that is getting into the the realm of glorify glorification and almost creepiness but that's just my opinion i thought you were going to bring up the his tweet about his giving his mail carrier a bottle of water since I work for the post office. Well, there's that too, (laughs) because I saw that and I'm like, um, if I were to be living in Las Vegas, I'd say challenge accepted because 
because it was 108 degrees that particular day and right. the mail service, or at least in this particular truck, didn't have any air AC. conditioning. Right. Uh, so yeah, Zach Bagans brought out a bottle of water for this person. Well done. Good job, Zach. Right. He can afford it. <laughs> but anyone can afford a bottle of water for the most part. Right. It's nothing. You can bring out a glass of water. It honestly um, shocks me that they don't have AC down there because up here, our our trucks are heated. I believe some have AC, some don't. It just depends on the truck and if they're driving their own vehicle because there are drivers that do that here in North Dakota. Even still, like whether some have them or some don't, at this point, I mean, it's 2018. All vehicles should have air conditioning, period. Right. Uh, especially when you're doing something like that because they do have, you know, uh, mail service, they, they have their doors open all the time, driving up and down these roads for hours a day. I mean, you're constantly getting whammed with heat or the freezing cold, depending on, you know, the time of year. Uh, but, yeah, you know, that's definitely something that needs to be taken care of, especially since it is a government funded company you know this is something that needs to be like should be done asap right what was your your take on that painting oh i mean i think i mean i agree with with what you said but i i think like in this particular sense um the painting uh is more like i mean it's a museum it, it is meant to educate you on stuff and it right like, i've never been to the museum but i would like to go this january um but from my understanding, the museum holds these little haunted trinkets, but then tells you about the trinkets, like what happened. And of course, most of the stuff is haunted. So there's a lot of murder and stuff like that that right. these are based on. Um, and that's not to say that this one's haunted because I don't think there's anything stating that it's haunted. But uh, it's just the idea of it. I mean, yes, there is like this sinister kind of grotesque idea behind it being painted with blood and the ashes of, of Manson and everything. But I don't think it's facetious by any means. I don't think it's a way to glorify, uh, especially since the the fund, it, it's actually, he set up a fund for it. So anybody who comes in to see it, there's a fund set up and those funds are going to be going toward the family of one of the victims uh, who were murdered by Manson and his posse. So, I mean, that right there alone says, look, we're not glorifying. We're trying to help. And yes, you probably think, like, well, fund for a family that's so many years ago, but it's never too late to, to help out and do this right. kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Justin and I are biased, but I think, I mean, I think it's it's the proof is in the pudding there. You know, I don't think it's it's wrong. But like you said, if you're going out and saying like these idiots uh, who are out there claiming they're Nazis, you know, I yeah. mean, now that's wrong. That's screwed up, uh, and those people should be taken down. Not in a you know, murder a step away, but they should be stopped. Uh, same with KKK and all of that stuff. All of that needs to be stopped because these are all, you know, basically uh, uh, communities that are highly violent, racist, uh, you know, just trouble. So, yeah. All right, folks, that is all we've got for you this week. Uh, stay tuned for next week when we do our wrap up and make sure you're getting in contact with us to talk about actually i don't think we've even really discussed this on air yet really quick uh the new series that we're going to be doing is kind of a campfirey tale type deal uh but we want your interaction uh if you've got a creepy story that you want to share whether it's you come on air and talk to us about it or you just give it to us to to talk about on air 
get in contact with us. Uh, the contact page is at paratruthradio.com and you can email us there or get on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, make sure you're checking out TMV Cafe, Fringe Radio Network. We're on those as well. And that's about it. So until next week, where we, you will find us same time, same channel. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. Peace. I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.